One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 913 for the week of Monday, October 16th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Greetings and felicitations from the East Coast of the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Well, greetings and felicitations as well from the East Coast of the United States. And welcome as well. Well, it's just you and me tonight, it turns out. Uh, Mark Ratterman is sick, and we hope that he feels better. And uh, Kat Robison has some exams to take care of, and we wish her the best of luck on those. And hopefully both of them will be back with us for our next episode. But in the meantime, we have so much space news to cover tonight. Gene, you and I have our work cut out for us. You ready? Oh, we do indeed. Let's roll up our sleeves, Sawyer, and get to work here. Well, it's a good thing I'm wearing a tank top right now. We don't need any sleeves rolled up. (laughs) Let's start things off with our launch roundup. And uh, as you know, last time our launch roundup was super busy with upcoming launches. Well, now we've got to cover them. So we'll start off with an Atlas V rocket that was carrying the NROL-42 satellite. That was supposed to launch, well, five times until it finally took off. We had weather delays that slowed us down. And then, just as everything was looking okay with the weather, there was a problem with the rocket itself. There was a faulty sensor on board. The rocket was rolled back to the vertical integration facility, which is where they put it all together. They replaced it. They rolled it back out to the pad, only to be delayed again by weather. <laughs> the launch. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it, it, it was not a fun, uh, fun uh, uh, deal for that particular eagle. But uh, the fifth time apparently was the charm. The 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 issue with the. Uh, uh, the the issue with with the 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 sensor that you mentioned, sorry, was a telemetry transmitter on on the uh, on the launch vehicle itself, which again, as you pointed out, they had to roll it right back to the to the uh, to the VIF and uh, get rid of the bulky one uh, and uh, put in a new sensor and then uh, test it, make sure she was uh, she was good to go, tested okay, rolled her back, and once again, you could pick it up from there. Where weather continually bit us. Welcome to go ahead. Welcome to trying to launch a rocket in Central Florida. <laughs> in Central Florida, in you know September, October, rainyish season at the end of it. Yeah, and uh, late at night as well didn't help either. Which the launch finally took off at three twenty-eight a.m. Eastern Time, seven twenty-eight GMT on October fifteenth, early, early Sunday morning eastern time and uh both of us i think we're up for that one at the early hour 
Yeah, that was that was a that was a nice uh, nice bird too. It was an Atlas V four twenty one that uh, launched out of uh, Space Launch Complex forty one over at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Uh, it you know it, it was a it was a pretty launch, and again because it was a uh, a secret uh, payload, uh, the uh, folks over at United Launch Launch Alliance were were asked to go ahead and and pull the plug on the coverage right after uh, payload uh, fairing separation. So if anybody was watching that. That's the reason they went ahead and did that because this was a secret, you know, uh, this was a secret launch for the National Reconnaissance Office. So we're not too sure what the bird uh, uh, is is up to, but uh, uh, know that it's uh, it's up there and uh, keeping us safe. Exactly, and we did get word on Twitter and social media that the launch was successful about 90 minutes afterwards. That's about all we know of it. And I'm sure there are amateur trackers that have already found the orbit of it. But regardless, the launch finally did go. Uh, fun fact, the last Atlas of any kind that had this many scrubs was an Atlas 2AS back in 2004 that launched on the fifth try. So, uh... Wow, ULA wasn't even in existence yet. <laughs> I know, exactly. But yeah. uh, regardless, ULA brings their successful launch count up to 122 out of 122 now. Which, fun fact, for as long as they've been existing now, that averages about one launch per month every month for the last 11 years. So hats off to ULA. They're, they're getting it done. And uh, they ain't done yet. Um, there is going to be a launch again out of... Uh, this time out of Vandenberg, uh, this will be the penultimate launch for the uh, for the Delta II booster. Uh, this launch will occur on Friday, November tenth, twenty seventeen, and this will be for the Joint Polar Satellite System, or uh, JPSS one. This will be for both uh, NOAA and NASA, uh, and this particular uh, satellite will go ahead, as the name insinuates, will be circling Earth from pole to pole. And we'll cross the equator about 14 times a day. Uh, and again, this will provide uh, full global coverage of, uh, of the Earth twice a day. And uh, so this is going to be some good stuff for NOAA to go ahead and keeping track of, uh, of uh, any kind of weather events that are going on out there. So this bird is definitely required. Just so you know, this is going to be a uh, bit of a big puppy here. Uh, yeah. Delta 2 7920. Which, uh, if you're not familiar with the Delta Twos, because I don't know if, how many Delta Twos we've ever covered on this show in our eight years. I think maybe one or two. Um, that means the seven is the designation for the Delta Two. That's a nine solid rocket boosters, or GEMs as they're calling them. And uh, the second of their second stage configurations, and the zero means there will be no third stage on it. So it's two stages, but quite a punch that's going to pack with nine solid motors. Holy cow! Yeah, the the uh, the Delta II. This is um, a medium class uh, booster. It's sort of, and I guess the best analog I can I can come up with for Delta II would probably be the orbital ATK Antares. This will be the next to last launch for for this particular launch vehicle. Kind of sad. It's had a had a pretty good history overall. And I believe this is this, this particular booster has been around since 1989 and one of its claims to fame was uh launching both Spirit and Opportunity to Mars. Not a bad little little booster. Uh this will be one of the last times uh the next to last time anyway that they'll be using it. Yeah, I should point out not just uh, Spirit and Opportunity, it also launched Mars Global Surveyor 
uh, Mars Climate Orbiter, Mars Odyssey, Mars Phoenix Lander, Pathfinder, and the ill-fated Mars Polar Lander. Launched all of those. In addition to Messenger to uh, Mercury, the Grail mission, it launched Dawn, Deep Impact, some of the biggest NASA missions of all time, the Spitzer Telescope, all of those courtesy of the Delta II. So it's got uh, quite the track record to it. It's sad that it's nearing its end, but it served its purpose very well. Indeed, Sawyer, indeed. Uh, it had an illustrious career, and, uh, and this is just going to be another feather on its cap. So uh, speaking of other Earth-observing satellites, uh, not only is that one going up, we had another one that just went up, and this was a European Space Agency satellite, and that was the Sentinel-5P, which successfully launched on basically a modified Russian missile, but regardless, uh, it successfully launched into space on October 13th, 2017. Um, this again, as you as you said, the 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 row cut rocket, the, as as it's called, I guess the 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 best analog next to that would probably be again the orbital ATK Minotaur or or something along those lines. But uh, th this was uh, this was another in the series of uh, Copernicus Earth resource satellites that Europe has. It was it was built. Uh, not too far away from uh, from London, actually. So this is a big deal for the, for the UK. It was built by uh, Air, Airbus Defence and Space uh, in in a facility not too far from London. It was kind of a bittersweet moment, really, for for the UK. One, you know, vast celebration because again, this is this is really getting. Um, the UK on the map once more, I mean, but unfortunately, because of uh, because of what's going on with the political situation, because of Brexit, their continued participation is kind of well, it, it's kind of hazy right now. So we're going to have to see how that turns out and how that works out. But so far, it's it's been a pr proud moment for for the UK in that that respect. Uh, Sentinel Five P, I understand, uh, did send back. To, send back its uh, signal saying, yep, I'm here, everything's good. So I'm sure they're going to go through a decommissioning phase, I mean, a commissioning phase, I'm sorry, and um, uh, make sure that the uh, the spacecraft is overall healthy. And, and I believe the purpose of this one, Sawyer, this is a, uh, a air pollution monitoring satellite, correct? Correct. This is going to be able to monitor air pollution in cities on a block-to-block -block basis. And in fact, there will be an iPhone and uh, an app that you can download that will be able to give you updated air quality information based on where you are once it's operational. That's cool. I did not know that. So we'll have to see where that is and see if we can get that on the show notes if, if, if it's available yet. And once if once it becomes available, we'll let you guys know. Yeah, it's not up yet, but uh, they've said that they will make that available for iPhones, tablets, and websites and other devices. So that uh, if you're going somewhere and you want to see how the air quality will be in a big city, you can find out. Speaking of air quality and things like that, I believe the both. I, I believe uh, China. <laughs> Sorry about that, but I know China has had some. I know. I know Beijing. In in some instances, uh, you can you can cut the air with a knife. Um, uh, yeah, it, it just reminded it just reminded me of that. I'm sorry that 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 was probably the most awkward segue ever. Oh no, we've had but, worse on uh, this show. Trust me, it's me that does them normally. That was a good one, actually. Yeah. Um, China's been really busy too. In fact, I, I understand Sawyer that, I, and and forgive me, I completely missed this. Uh, this was something that that China actually aired live, which was just kind of unprecedented for them. Correct? 
correct. October 9th, as we mentioned, was going to be a busy launch day. It was. Uh, Chinese Long March 2D rocket launched at 4.13 GMT, 12.13 AM Eastern Time, from the Zhuquan Space Base in the Gobi Desert in northwest China. Uh, the two-stage Long March 2D ended up carrying, believe it or not, a Venezuelan satellite called VRSS-2. It's an Earth-observing surveillance satellite and uh, will give space-based reconnaissance to the country's government to aid security forces, emergency responders, farmers, and health professionals. So a very wide-ranging satellite. But the biggest deal, in my opinion, about this launch is that since it was for Venezuela and not a Chinese satellite, the entire launch was broadcast live. It is very rare that China lets us in on launches live because we've talked about some of their accidents before, and we always say that if we ever get an update, we'll give it to you. If you notice, we haven't given you many updates because they haven't been put out. So for them to broadcast a launch live like this, I think, was a big deal. Yeah, it's it's kind of unprecedented. I'll, I'll be blunt. When you told me this uh, earlier, Sawyer, during the pre-show, I had some very, very interesting memories, and this is where my memory goes all the way back to the Apollo-Soyuz test flight back in 1975 when uh, we saw a Russian launch for the very first time. For folks today, that's commonplace, but back then in 75. Wow, that was that was just totally you know mind blowing to see a, a a Soyuz booster launch. So this is this I guess was was their moment to to shine. Absolutely, and they did a great job. The launch was declared a success, and so congratulations to China and Venezuela on that one. And in addition, there was another launch scheduled for October 9th. If, if there wasn't enough going on already, and that was Japan, right next door, also ended up launching a satellite. Uh, that was an H-2A rocket launching their, one of my favorite names, as we love to talk about on the show, the <laughs> Michibiki-4 satellite, which is part of their GPS coverage system for Japan. It was the fourth of that satellite group, and that launched successfully at 22.01 GMT, which was 6.01 p.m. Eastern Time on the 9th. And again, that one was broadcast live as well. The coverage was entirely in Japanese, so it was a little difficult to understand, but it was very interesting watching these two coverages, the Chinese launch and the Japanese launch. And uh, I just have to quote something that someone tweeted at me after um, tweeting out the links to these. And they said, after watching the Chinese launch and the Japanese launch webcasts, I have a whole new appreciation for SpaceX and for ULA and their webcasts. <laughs> yeah, they're they're actually stepping up their game. I mean, ULA's doing some really good stuff. SpaceX is doing some really stuff with their webcasts, and um, I did not see the 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 Japanese launch, unfortunately. So I guess I I can't comment. So Sawyer, in your opinion, what what was what was the deal? You pretty much had one camera angle for the entire time until uh, the launch itself. There was maybe two cameras total. Uh, ground tracking cameras were not as great as the ones we're used to, but you still got to see it for a good 15 or 20 seconds. And uh, what I found most interesting is there was no, the countdown, you know, it was occasionally things would pop up and it would say, you know, 10 minutes to launch, one minute to launch in both Japanese and English. Um, but there was someone that was counting the entire time. And I'll be perfectly oh, honest, geez. I was getting a little annoyed about it after a while. Uh, it was They were counting on almost every second, then they would take a break. And then they would keep counting down again every second. And that was what stuck out to me most about the Japanese webcast was just the counting voice. And I believe that was counting. I don't speak Japanese, but it sounded as if it was every second, as if it was counting down. I guess somebody needs to go ahead and uh, take some lessons from... Uh... 
uh, some folks over at NASA and some folks over at uh, SpaceX and, and, and ULA to, to go ahead and enhance their launch coverage. But regardless, the most important thing is the launch of the Tadagashima Space Center worked perfectly. The satellite was successfully placed into the correct orbit. And so congratulations goes to JAXA. Yep. To bring it back over here, Sawyer, I believe SpaceX has been awfully busy lately. Why don't you go ahead and, and uh, fill us in on that? Oh, boy, yes. Uh, SpaceX has had quite the run. We had uh, two launches within the time that uh, we were on. And remember when we talked about October 9th being a very, very busy day? Well, uh, that's because the third launch on October 9th was a SpaceX launch. That was a launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, the Falcon 9 rocket successfully carried 10 more Iridium satellites into space as part of their Iridium Next network. The payloads launched successfully from Launch Complex 4 east at Vandenberg Air Force Base at 5.37 a.m. Pacific Time, which was 8.37 Eastern Time or 12.37 GMT. The rocket successfully placed all 10 of them into their correct orbit and once again landed successfully on a barge floating in the ocean. The barge being called, just read the instructions in case you were wondering. Uh, <laughs> video feed cut out just a little bit before landing, but regardless afterwards, you could see the booster sitting there successfully on the barge in the dark of the early morning. Everything went beautifully with that launch, so congratulations again to SpaceX on that one. Yeah, Sawyer, they've racked up quite a few uh, successes of late. I believe their target for this year was uh, 20 launches. I believe they've got 15 now under their belt, and it is late October, and on their, uh, I guess, because of what's going on with the manifest and so on and so forth, they are pretty much on a cadence that might get them to that 20 launch mark by the end of the year, by, by December 31. So Yeah, especially since uh, that was their 14th successful launch out of 14 attempts. And you mentioned there was 15 because there was another SpaceX launch just a few days later. On October 12th, if we go to the opposite side of the country, there was a SpaceX launch out of Launch Complex 39A. It was an absolutely spectacular, gorgeous sunset launch from Launch Complex 39A. The launch took off successfully on October 12th at 6.53 p.m. Eastern Time, which was 22.53 GMT, as I mentioned, into an absolutely phenomenal sunset. It was a beautiful launch. Uh, the launch occurred right on time, exactly as it was planned. It then came back and landed successfully on the barge floating in the Atlantic Ocean this time called, of course, I Still Love You. Even after all those crashes, it landed safely. That, I believe, marked their 16th successful booster landing of all time. And uh, they are doing phenomenal. So that launched the SES-11 satellite, also known as Echostar 105, into orbit, which will bring communications to the United States, including 4K uh, video coverage in addition to other video services across the country. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, there's something, well, we're nearing Halloween here in in the uh in the US and I guess in other places around the world. It's October 18th as we record this. And there's a little bit of a mystery going on with SpaceX, correct? Correct. 
they do have a uh, a launch scheduled for the day before Halloween for a very spooky launch of the Koreasat 5A mission, blah, blah. But uh, that is currently scheduled from October 30th from Launchpad 39A. The next launch was originally supposed to be the CRS-13 resupply mission to the International Space Station. But as you alluded to, um, noticed that there was an odd mission that popped up. A few of us uh, space reporters were looking at the uh, FAA launch license that was put in. And there was a launch license that was put in for no earlier than November 10th. The launch is of a mystery, quote-unquote, Zuma mission. What is the mission? <laughs> the only thing that NASA Spaceflight is able to confirm about it is that it is for Northrop Grumman. And it will go into low Earth orbit. And they are going to plan, according to the launch license, for a landing back at landing zone 1. So return to landing site 1, not on a barge. That's all we know about it. It's a new booster, and it's launching this mystery Zuma satellite that just randomly popped up on the manifest within the last week of us recording this. And the fact that it's going to launch in like two, three weeks now, it's baffled most of us. And as a result, I should add, this has actually pushed CRS-13 back a week due to the station orientation and scheduling. Yeah, sure. I'm looking at the article from nasaspaceflight.com right now, um, and they're indicating that the mission is labeled as, quote, government and a needed launch range of November 1st through November 30th of this year. And I believe that the core booster uh, was the one that was originally planned for the CRS-13 Dragon mission. Uh, this is, uh, according to what I'm reading here um, in this particular paragraph, and I'm going to unquote directly from it, quote, while nothing is known of the payload, what is known is that Zuma will use the Falcon 9 Core B1043, a brand new core that was originally, as understood by nasaspaceflight.com, intended for the CRS-13 Dragon mission. So I'm not sure what's going on here. Uh, it, it, I mean, what, what, what's going to be on board this thing? It's obviously might be some new secret payload that um, that somebody wanted within government. We know it's for Northrop Grumman, but that doesn't tell us much. We know that's the manufacturer of this particular thing. We do know it's a government bird, but we don't know what the bird is for. Uh, just the same, you know, to, to put this into, into just a little perspective, it's the same thing for any of the... Uh, uh, National Reconnaissance Office missions. We don't really know what those birds are all about and what they're all for. They could be data relay satellites. It could be observation satellites. We've got no idea. So, um, but we'll we'll keep tabs on this. We'll see what happens. But all we know as of right now, uh, sometime on Friday, November tenth, twenty seventeen, there is going to be a secret payload launch that SpaceX is going to conduct from Launchpad 39A. This was one of the most surprising things. It was just so out of the blue that all of a sudden, here's a manifest, you know, here's a mission that gets added to the manifest two, three weeks before launch, and is maybe just them helping to push their rapid turnaround rate of like, hey, you want to launch, we can get it done in a month or two. But it's cutting it close to the licensing and the fact that they're squeezing it in between the Koreasat launch and the CRS-13 mission is... It's a bit surprising, but uh, this also brings up the question of uh, when is Space Launch Complex 40 getting back into action? 
If you remember, near the end of last year, 2016, the Amos 6 mission had a failure on the launch pad. September 1st. Uh, that caused the launch pad to be out of commission and has been out of commission ever since. Uh, now, we're still waiting for it to come back. It was supposed to be supposedly October. That way they could finish getting Launch Complex 39A ready for the Falcon Heavy. With Koreasat originally supposed to be the first one out of Slick 40, it is now out of 39A. With this other mission being squeezed into 39A, the question becomes, will they be able to launch Falcon Heavy before the end of the year? We can already say it has been pushed till at least December. And the other question is, will CRS-13 now be moved to Slick 40, considering the fact that there's going to be a launch a week before it of this mystery Zuma mission? The other thing too, I'm looking at, and I'm, I'm just, just something really quick, Sawyer. It looks like CRS 13 is probably going to slip about a week from it's no earlier than 28 November date to into early December. So, and and this is again according to NASASpaceflight.com. So this might, you know, play into the. The whole whole plan here. Um, we had some discussion while we were preparing here, and we thought that perhaps maybe um, CRS thirteen would be the very first one to fly out of uh, uh, the newly refitted uh, Launch Complex forty. But uh, we'll we'll just you know hold on to your hold on to your hats. This mystery launch has kind of really thrown the whole thing for a loop. But uh, I will say this to to get back to my initial my initial uh, uh, story here. They were pretty much on cadence to get. They wanted to get twenty missions under their belt this year, and from what I'm seeing, again, let me see. We've got this this mystery bird launching. We have the November, We have the October. Excuse me, the October thirtieth launch coming up, and then we have uh, CRS thirteen. We're nearing that point, so if they could really, really get this get this going, uh, this would be a significant feather in, in in their cap and a significant crowing point. Meaning they're finally maturing, they're finally getting you know Falcon to 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 mature properly as a reliable booster. It, it, hopefully, its growing pains are pretty much behind it, and uh, uh, it seems like confidence is high, and they're able to go ahead and and be able to churn this uh, you know churn the, the the waters as it were and get things out on schedule as as they uh they they want to so again hats off to them hopefully this this kind of launch rate continues and hopefully they're able to to really really uh make their mark because this is this is part of their 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 business model the idea is is to turn these things over quickly and fast and get these birds off and going but also getting them off safely and if they can pull that off um, uh, guys, you're you're really going to have a for force to deal with in launch services. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we had you know joked about it before of them getting twenty launches in a year, and yet here they are on course for it with booster landings and everything. And now, you know, being able to just throw satellites into the mix and hopefully getting three launch pads now up and operational between Vandenberg and Cape Canaveral. I mean, this, they really are a force to be reckoned with. And uh, again, now it's a matter of you've got ULA, which is 122 for 122, averages one launch a month. Now you've got SpaceX that is averaging two launches a month, uh, or 
a, a launch and a half, essentially. Uh, sometimes with three of them in one month, some of them three days apart. You know, the launch cadence of theirs is so unpredictable in a good way that the options now for launching are bigger and better than ever. And uh, <laughs> we've got some competition, and it's going to be very exciting to see what happens as the year comes to an end. And uh, if Falcon Heavy gets off the end of the year or if it's going to get pushed to 2018 and just where the space industry goes from here. Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm not going to go ahead and say this just yet, but, you know, um, I'm I'm willing to, to go ahead and say, waiter, uh, one order of crow, please. Uh, because I, I didn't think uh, they were going to be able to pull it off. And uh, so far, they've been able to, to exceed expectations. My question is this, though. Can they can do it consistently? And, you know, because, you know, people get tired, people get... People are hu people are humans, and and you know you have to you have to factor that in too. Um, but uh, uh, I'll be the first to, to order that uh, that order a crow. Be more than happy to throw all the uh, all the condiments on on it and eat heartily if they're they're able to go ahead and pull off what they want to pull off. And I'll order the foot as well. Oh, please do. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but congratulations to SpaceX on those launches, and uh, we'll see what happens with uh, Zuma and Falcon Heavy and CRS-13 and KoreaSat and all the other launches scheduled for the rest of this year with them. And I will, I will have one other thing before we 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 uh, we kind of end our, our little look at uh, at space launch for uh, for this particular uh, installment. Little, although we're we, almost at thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah, and although we 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 ha we have two more to go, but one more domestically. Orbital ATK was asked by NASA to go ahead and push back the OA-8 mission to the International Space Station. OA-8 is their uh, cargo resupply mission. This will be a Cygnus launch. This will probably be the heaviest uh, Cygnus that they've ever flown or that Antares has, has carried at, uh, I believe, Sawyer, if I remember, we, we mentioned this last, last time out, about 7,400 pounds. This will be launching out of the uh, Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport out there at Wallops Island, Virginia. And uh, hopefully we're going to be be there to uh, bring in the sights and sounds uh, of that one. But uh, uh, we're looking at a November 11th uh, Veterans Day launch right now, and uh, we'll see how that turns out. But uh, but right now that that's that again that was pushed back by NASA. That was not pushed back by Orbital or any type of technical problem. Exactly, which that one's been getting pushed back quite a bunch. To be perfectly honest, by NASA, and that was originally supposed to be. August or September, and then it was pushed to October and November. Uh, that I mean, I'm glad that the last time the reason that they gave us uh, when I spoke to them was because of they want to load it up with as much science and things as they can. And considering the fact that there's also a CRS-13 mission coming up now in December, you know they're already getting some supplies, so now they're trying to load this one with as much as they can. Right now, I'll bet you that that's that's the whole. That's probably the reason for the delay here too. They probably want to make sure that the they're able to, to tuck everything that they can can in every little cubic centimeter of the spacecraft to make sure that they're, they're able to go ahead and um, really, really utilize um, Cygnus to the best of its ability because that, that is one big cavernous spacecraft um, as far as uh, carrying material. I think it's the biggest one we've, we've got thus far, save, or at least the United States has anyway. 
I'm not too sure how it measures up to the uh, the Japanese HTV, but uh, I know it does dwarf progress, and I know it's you know Dragon is is, is roomy, but uh, I think the new uh, upgraded Cygnus kind of takes the uh, takes the crown in that one as well. So. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that one, and hopefully we'll be able to go ahead and bring in the sights and sounds of that particular launch as uh, as things uh, move ahead. Exactly. We will certainly keep you up to date on that, and uh, that's going to be a fantastic mission. Again, seeing that one out of Wallops Island. and uh, We'll keep an update, and we'll hopefully bring that launch to you. Always love uh, Wallops Island launches because, hey, it's it's almost local. It's almost like in our backyard over here in the uh, the mid-Atlantic region of uh of the country and it's something to i i i don't know i i get really really you know proud about that that is that is really cool because uh again it it just basically shows how and and so you kind of alluded it to it before how things are going in the space launch area i think everybody's getting involved everybody i mean i remember toward you know and and i believe we said this last episode uh, everybody was asking us, what are we going to be talking about now that shuttle's grounded? <laughs> you know, what isn't there to talk about? So it's an exciting time for launch services. It's going to get really, really competitive. It's going to get really, really interesting. And uh, brace yourselves. I don't think you've seen anything yet. That's for sure. There's still so much to come on that. And there's still, as you mentioned, one more launch left in our launch roundup, which these are not quick anymore. They used to be five, ten minutes. Now uh, yeah. there's so much going on, but that's a good thing. And uh, this was the Progress MS-07, also called Progress 68, resupply mission to the ISS. We had something extremely, extremely rare occur on this one, and that was that there was a scrub of a Soyuz launch. As hard as that is to believe, I had to do some research on it. The only one I could see prior to this was a scrub out of French Guiana for the Sentinel-1B launch back in 2016. But before that, I have struggled to find any history of a Soyuz scrub. Uh, the scrub occurred on the original launch date, uh, which was supposed to be Thursday, October 12th. But there was a scrub that was called... Uh, they gave a little bit of an explanation, but said that Roscosmos will give the full reasoning behind it. What was the uh, the brief reasoning they gave on NASA TV for that one? Well, well, actually, if I recall exactly, they were kind of groping for an answer on that one because because Rob Navius didn't know, uh, and the uh, the folks at initially that there was no indication from from the Russian side of the house of what was going on. Finally, it was the the cause was was tracked down due to an electrical connection on one of the launch pad service towers that didn't disconnect from the rocket as you know as soon as the engines turned on, and it basically kept the the vehicle from switching switching from uh, external to internal power as as, as scheduled, but uh, when it initially happened, it was kind of head scratching time. Nobody really really understood what was going on, but so everybody was kind of looking at, at at this progress, trying to progress off the launch launch pad, and it turned out to be not exactly progressive off the launch pad. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, that's a that's a me level joke. I wish I had the yeah. time to throw it. It it eventually launched. The problem with this was the the initial idea was to go ahead and get the bird off the ground, but then have a three and a half rendezvous to orbit 
rendezvous with the ISS and, and really, really get the, the supplies over there. It was trying to demonstrate immediacy. Well, with the lack of progress on that particular progress uh -huh. launch, thank you, no applause, just throw money. <laughs> yes. So with that, uh, because of that, um, that whole whole idea was scrapped and it turned out to be just a, I believe, a two-day rendezvous. Yep, back to the classic, because they're hoping to eventually start doing that with crew to do a two- or three-orbit one, which right now they've gotten it down to six hours. They want to get it down to three, which a two-orbit, three-hour rendezvous was gutsy, and it would have been really cool. But uh, at least it finally did go off, and it launched on Saturday in the very early morning hours for us, which was 4.46 a.m. Eastern Time, 8.46 GMT, but it was 2.46 in the afternoon in Baikonur. Yeah, I remember talking to somebody. Um, actually, I think I brought this up um, at the, um, I almost want to say, the OA5 um, press conference. And I remember asking both um, Frank, Frank Culbertson and the uh, ISS representative over there about the possibility of doing a uh, very quick turnaround with the Cygnus spacecraft. And NASA actually answered the question and basically said they really didn't think there was going to be a need for, uh, for that kind of quick turnaround. Uh, with 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 Cygnus and and Frank Culbertson basically said said almost the same thing. It it was just you know something that they initially thought about exploring, but uh, it was not really something that uh, that they didn't think that they were going to need as far as the immediacy of that particular uh, kind of launch profile. So, um, but I guess the the Russians think it's critical. It's a critical thing to have in have in their. Uh, uh, in their cap, and uh, I don't know if, if SpaceX has got the same thing, you know, planned or, or not, but it uh, be interesting to find out if that's part of their uh, their uh, profile, too, to see if they want to get a, uh, um, a very quick uh, uh, launch and rendezvous profile together for, uh, for the ISS. I didn't even think about that. That would be fascinating to find out. Well, there's a question for you if, if you're going to go down... Uh, to cover uh, 13 for us. <laughs> All right. Next time I'm down there, I'll be sure to ask about that. Please do. But, man, these uh, Soyuz launches, it, it's so rare to see them scrub. But uh, it's a good thing because, again, it's all about safety with these. So congratulations on the successful progress launch. And the crew aboard the International Space Station got those supplies a few days later, much to their delight, I can tell you that. In addition to that, though, we talk about how it was successful and all that, and uh, I'm going to bring it back to 2011 for a second here. Uh, Gene, you and I had a story that we saw that we just shook our heads at, as they called it the age of Soyuz reliability as the shuttle program was ending, followed a few months later by a progress failure. Um, well, that uh, age of reliability continues, as it was just announced recently that an April... 2017 return from the International Space Station. So a few months later now, it turns out, uh, shortly after the parachutes deployed, a strap supposedly hit the capsule and caused a depressurization with the crew members inside. Thankfully, they were in their suits, so there was supposedly no risk to the crew at that point, according to the information released on it. But regardless, capsule depressurization on return is a big deal 
Yeah, sorry, that's bad. This, um, as we were kind of alluding to, this this happened uh, um, at a meeting of NASA's uh, International Space Station Advisory Committee uh, back on October 16th. Um, I'm looking at a Space News report about it right now, and this was reported by the uh, committee uh, chairman, who is none other than uh, Tom Stafford, former uh, Gemini and Apollo astronaut. Uh, he was the one who reported that the incident took place. Again, this was after the deployment of the main parachute, and this was on the Soyuz MS-02 spacecraft that was returning uh, on April 10th of, uh, of this year. It was carrying astronaut Shane Kimbrough, uh, Sergei uh, Rizkov, and uh, Andrei Borsenko back home. And um, they were in their hard suits, as uh, as directed. And this is uh, that's been a um, uh, standard operating procedure since the uh, sad uh, uh, events of Soyuz 11, where we lost that crew. But uh, as reported, uh, a buckle had struck a welding seam. Uh, this buckle is apparently part of the parachute system, and uh, it ruptured the welding seam and uh, caused a depressurization event, allowing some air to escape from, from the vehicle. The partial loss of pressure did not jeopardize the crew in any way. The valve apparently opens normally once the descent stage gets to an altitude of uh, five kilometers anyway, allowing air to get into the, the spacecraft. Um, and the crew was wearing their pressure suits at the time. Again, I wanted to go ahead and emphasize that because the crew was in no danger at that point. But still, it was a troubling event, and um, this coupled with the um, uh, progress launch snafus back in 2015 and uh, 2016 where we lost two progress vehicles plus... The interesting little event that occurred just uh, a couple of days ago, um, which grounded a, a progress vehicle, uh, along with some other things that have been going on in the, in the Russian program. Again, we've had, you know, unfortunately, um, uh, when Peggy Whitson returned from her uh, her her mission the first time around, we had that interest. She had an interesting ride home, to say the very least. Um, it's, it's really kind of throwing, I don't know, it, it to me, it, it kind of throws a question over, um, over Soyuz and do we really, really, to me, it, 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 it's a clear signal to both Boeing and SpaceX guys, we need you, uh, because right now we're relying on one vehicle to get crew to the International Space Station, and that is Soyuz. And Soyuz, although is getting up, it gets uprated, it, it gets uh, um, you know examined. There are ways to, of, of making it better. In fact, this whole the, the, the we're at a, on a new iteration of Soyuz, and I know that the Russians supposedly have the Federation vehicle waiting in the wings. They're working on that too, trying to go ahead and, and replace Soyuz, but. Is Federation going to be ready in time for ISS? Doubt it, given given the fact that they don't have have the money. So, you know, really, on this side of the house, we really, really need to go ahead and 
and make sure that we get the commercial crew vehicles up and going. So Boeing, SpaceX, you know, it, we're waiting for you, man. And uh, hopefully we can get uh, uh, you know, U.S. astronauts going from U.S. soil quite soon. I know SpaceX is still sticking to their date of the end of 2018. It, I know Boeing announced uh, earlier uh, that they unfortunately have to push theirs to 2019. Um, but we'll just have to, <laughs> we'll just have to see what happens. Um, I do know that the, um, that the booster for the first, uh, uh, CST 100 Starliner launch is already at the Cape. Um, but, uh, or at least already, well, not, excuse me, not at the Cape, but at least it's, it's in ULA's possession. Um, there it, it's, it's being fabricated at this point believe uh, Tori Bruno showed it at his, at his uh, on his Twitter feed um, so it's in process so it means that you know we're, we're nearing that point in in that that time period but you know guys we really need you now and and I'm hoping that the resources are there for both of them hint hint Congress I'm hoping that uh, um, that you know both both sides have got their their act together and really are, are set to go ahead and support getting good, reliable spacecraft or brand new spacecraft up and going to the International Space Station. I mean, Soyuz is, you know, um, it's an old it's an old bird. It's been around since 1967. And, and one of the things that the Russians are good for, though, they could go ahead, they take something that works just barely and kind of refine it as you as as they go along and so far so good with Soyuz we haven't had anything really um well we've had some wrinkles here and there but uh, but and and some very very close calls here and there that have made us nervous and and I think think getting the the new vehicles and reducing the reliance on Soyuz, relieving the pressure on Soyuz, really, uh, would be a really good thing right now. So um, right now, Soyuz is, is the bird we have, and we'll we'll just have to deal with her. But uh, hopefully, the other two vehicles, once they come online, will will help uh, lighten the burden on on uh, on Soyuz. So fingers crossed. Absolutely, yeah. Again, they're getting pushed back a little bit, but uh, hopefully we'll see that come up soon. And again, I'm sure they already have been taking precautions as a result of this, and if not, that they will be taking precautions. So um, we'll keep an eye on it and uh, hope that we don't hear any more reports of this and hope that uh, Boeing and SpaceX get their crew capsules up and running sooner than later. So while we're talking about the ISS, not only did they get supplies, they've also been doing some spacewalks. Two of the three spacewalks have been completed by the time we've recorded this, with one more to go. Most of them have been out there to fix the Canid Arm 2, the robot arm aboard the ISS, and the end effector, basically the things that help grapple uh, on whatever it needs to catch on to. Uh, they've been wearing down with age, as they've noticed, so might as well go and replace it. And, uh... We've had three spectacular crew members out there working on it over the course of a few spacewalks, right, Gene? 
Yeah, uh, Brandy Bresnik and Mark Vandehei have been doing a bang-up job the past two EVAs. And again, Sawyer, as you pointed out, these this is basically preventative maintenance on uh, Canada Arm 2, uh, which has been performing like a champ, really, uh, during its lifetime. And just like any... Any machine, it needs uh, servicing and it needs replacement parts, and and that's pretty much what uh, what those uh, those two have been doing is making sure the Canada Arm Two is is up and going. Um, for the third and final EVA in this particular series, that will occur, believe I believe, on Friday, October twentieth. Um, this will be with Randy Bresnik and uh, Joe Acaba this time. Their, their EVA will begin at about 8.05 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and uh, NASA TV is going to start their coverage at about 6.30 in the morning, uh, again, Eastern Daylight Time. The task these guys are going to be doing, they've been through some adjustments. Uh, both Bresnik and Akaba are going to replace a fuse on De Dexter's um, um, orbital replacement unit temporary platform, uh, and I'm reading directly from uh, the NASA website here. They're going to install a enhanced HD camera on the star on the starboard one of the uh, lower outboard truss. They're going to remove uh, some thermal insulation on two spare units to prepare uh, those components for uh, for future robotic replacement work, if needed. And um, they're going to place a replacement light on uh, Canon Arm 2's uh, uh, end effector. And this will, again, help, uh, help the robotic arm see what it's doing. Um, this will also be a final lubrication of that uh, new end effector. And uh, they were supposed to replace a camera on the Destiny Lab, and I believe they've deferred that work for, uh, for later on. But those are the, the tasks that, uh, that the, uh, the, the duo will be doing. And again, for, um, we'll go ahead and, and report back and let you folks know how everything went. But uh, so far, so good. The, both EVAs have been, been uh, successful thus far, and there's no reason to doubt this one won't be either. Exactly. Again, like you said, they've been doing a bang-up job, and uh, Mark Van High is now the 221st person to do a spacewalk, so congratulations to him on that as well. So now we have some huge, huge stories to finish this out with, and both of them, I think, are going to make quite a big bang, and both of them in slightly different ways. So we're going to start off with an announcement by United Launch Alliance. They have said that they will be launching a B-330 habitat made by Bigelow Aerospace into low lunar orbit in the next few years. They have contracted to launch aboard a Vulcan rocket, once that's ready, a Vulcan 562, and that is set to be deployed by 2022 and become a sort of lunar depot, as they've been calling it. Uh, they'll help get it ready in orbit around the Earth, get it all fueled up, get it everything it needs, and using the Vulcan engine itself, the upper stage, help get that to the moon. This is a pretty big deal, the fact that Bigelow's saying, hey, we're just going to make our own lunar outpost, especially after talking about the possible lunar gateway, the deep space gateway, uh, last episode. Yeah, Sawyer, to, to kind of bring everybody up to speed, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the, the NASA's plans for the infamous deep space gateway. This was going to be a, an outpost that... Uh, 
uh, was to kind of, well, I don't want to say pick up from where the ISS left off because this is going to be quite a different challenge to have a an orbiting uh, piloted platform around the moon. This is a little step further out into into the void, so to speak. You're not orbiting the Earth anymore. You're about three days from home rather than a couple hours from home. Uh, in this instance, uh, you're you know stepping your uh, you're instead of uh, you know just dipping your toe in, into the water. You're you're going in about knee deep here. Um, and the whole perspective is not only to kind of pick up from where the ISS left off with more experiments and so on, but it's also to go ahead and try to see what you can do um, from a lunar aspect, too. The possibility existed that you might be able to go ahead and get a crew on there and put, some, put a robotic presence on, on the moon. Um, also, if you want to throw a lander into the mix, you can have that lander rendezvous uh, and dock with the... Uh, uh, deep Space Gateway, and uh, have that lander depart from from the Deep Space Gateway onto the lunar surface. So it could theoretically be a, a, a bit of a linchpin, if you will, for any return to the moon. In fact, uh, I believe there was a report, um, and I'm looking at a article uh, dated October 12th. Again, this is Space News, um, indicating that... Um, if we were to shift plans from uh, you know a, a Mars centric to a lunar centric kind of thing, uh, which rumor has it that we might, um, it's not going to affect uh, the uh, the space launch system in any way, shape, or form. But this is kind of interesting because I know uh, I sat in a, at a presentation, I believe it was just oh about two years ago, uh, with. Uh, United Launch Alliance's Bernard Cutter. He um, he talked at the uh, uh, at uh, NEF 2015 um, over in uh, New York and told us about ULA's plan for a cis lunar economy. Basically, trying to go ahead and set up, basically make cis lunar space a place where humans will work and you know expect to live and expect to uh, be a part of. And this this was not just a, a you know one or two or three year thing. This was this was a thirty year architecture, and I kind of get the feeling that this is not just you know kind of saying hey NASA if you need this as a depot if you need this as a storage facility it's right there, or if you need it for something else it's right there. Uh, this this could be part of a a linchpin in that entire 30-year plan. This could actually be the start of it. And uh, um, the other thing to keep in mind, too, that this is between uh, United Launch Alliance and Bigelow Aerospace. Bigelow, as you know, had taken the the expandable module idea that NASA had because NASA just did not have the funds to go ahead and pursue it any further Bigelow decided to pick up the technology and and try to try to play with it, try to push it. For those of you who don't know, that technology is actually being tested right now on the International Space Station. There's a uh, experiment module module that Bigelow has on the ISS that may actually that that has been there for some time now. In fact, NASA is so pleased with it that you know it might actually uh, get extended. Uh, that mission may get extended with with, uh, 
with that particular expandable module. So NASA thinks that, hey, this could be something. And, uh, uh, but this is a real big deal between um, United Launch Alliance and Bigelow Aerospace. Because again, this is going to be something that will be funded between the two of them. And NASA's not involved in this. Um, all of the, uh, this is, this is two companies getting together saying, Hey, we want to go ahead and try this and see what happens. And we, we want to see if we can get this, this particular expandable module together and into, uh, into lunar orbit and see if, uh, see if we can make it work out there. And if you, because so far it seems to be working on the ISS. It's going to be I, I Sawyer. I'll tell you, there's going to be some exciting times ahead. I, I really feel feel finally we're we're picking up uh, the gauntlet left behind by the Apollo astronauts in a way. Uh, we're trying to get something going. If it's not NASA that's going to try to get this going, it may be private industry, and who knows? I know there's a guy over in a uh, guy by the name of uh, Dave Maston that would love to go ahead and build you a lander. So. Uh, so who knows? Um, th this could be the start of something, and uh, we'll have to watch the story very, very closely because I think this this really, really could be the linchpin of something really, really exciting going forward. And if they don't get, you know, if it's something that uh, that that NASA might be able to leverage for the Deep Space Gateway too. So exciting times ahead, Sawyer. Really, and uh, this 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 is a big deal. Exactly. And I mean, just looking at this, there's so many fascinating things with it. First off, with the Vulcan being able to refuel all the cryogenics and stuff in it to get it to the moon from there is pretty cool. Uh, in addition, the B-330, in case you're unaware, it's another sort of inflatable module like we've been talking about. Uh, in terms of size, uh, one B-330, when it's completed, uh, will have the internal space of one third of the current pressurized volume of the ISS. So the current crew space of the ISS, one module of this will have a third of that, and that'll be around the moon. And sorry, expandable, not inflatable. But um, regardless, that's if this happens, uh, that like you said, may jeopardize what NASA's doing, or if nothing else, to have two separate ones—a private and a public sort of base on the moon—to finally get back there. I don't care how we get back; these are both fantastic options, and. Uh, I'm excited to see if this comes through. And Robert Bigelow, if you've ever seen him talk or ever talked to him, he's a bit eccentric, but in a good way. Kind of like an Elon Musk sort of type person. And I know I'm going to catch flack for a comparison like that, but uh, it's just fascinating for his vision on this and not just the vision, but just pursuing it. And uh, I'm excited with this partnership. I'm very excited. Yeah, that makes two of us. And sorry, just, just to give listeners an idea that that may not know some of our listeners probably do the international space station has got the working volume essentially of a of a 740 the interior of a 747 or a six bedroom house so when you know you you mentioned the dimensions of the uh, of the expandable module that's going to be going up uh, that Probably is a bit of a mind blower uh, as what this this ability ha what it has what it's capable of. So um, again, this is this is going to be remarkable stuff. I mean, you you theoretically could have a have a uh, an area where um, if and and this might be <laughs> I'm I'm probably you know 
I, I might be jumping the shark here. I don't know, but um, we may be to a point soon where you may be a, a master's student or something like that and have a reason to conduct a, a lunar geology experiment. You could go ahead and send those commands uh, to a, to a ro robot on the lunar surface, or you yourself theoretically could send those commands from one of those expandable modules um, if your university has enough to go ahead and pay for a jaunt like that. So that's where we're getting to. Um, I don't know if you know, I, I I don't know if that's going to be something foreseeable in into the you know in in the in the you know, near future, but in the not too distant future, I think you're going to see stuff like that happening. I agree, and again, we're talking like 2022 time frame sort of for both of these. You know, 2020 is early for NASA, and Bigelow has said that um, their part will be ready anytime after 2020 to launch. So uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on this one. Indeed, Sawyer, indeed. Exciting times, I'll tell you. Exciting times. Exactly. Exciting times in man space and super exciting times in astronomy as well. Recently, the Nobel Prize in Science went to the team that worked on LIGO, which helped discover gravitational waves, first theorized by Einstein, for the first time in 2015 using this spacecraft network of a few spacecrafts trying to measure ripples through time and space, as crazy as that is to think of. Well, most of those have been measured coming from black holes, which give off massive amounts of energy from them and cause some of these waves. Turns out they're not the only ones. Two neutron stars, which is after a star dies, it compresses down into a neutron star, which... If you were to take one teaspoon of a neutron star, the mass would be more than the entire mass of the island of Manhattan, which that is a heavy, tiny piece of matter. Two of them combined. They crashed into each other, creating not a supernova, but a kilonova, as scientists called it. And amazingly, they were able to observe gravitational waves from this. What makes this so special is that black holes, well, they're black holes because light gets sucked into them. This is the first time that scientists were able to actually observe the light and things associated with an event involving these gravitational waves. And these were absolutely huge findings. People from around the world pointed their telescopes after the event happened on August 17th, shortly after 8.41 a.m., when it was observed by NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. You got a pulse of high-energy light coming from that powerful explosion. LIGO got to work. Over 60 different people on the ground got to work. The Hubble Space Telescope got to work. And over the course of a few days and weeks, they observed this thing. And not only did they get amazing information about gravitational waves and the fact that, believe it or not, X-rays were not emitted from it, which you would think from such a huge collision would happen, but most importantly, we saw the creation of of huge amounts of some of the heavier elements like gold and platinum. So um, can we say that scientists struck gold on this one? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the idea was, Sawyer, as you mentioned, uh, and I don't believe uh, there has been an event with all of these telescopes pointed in that region of the sky I believe since the 1987 uh, Large uh, Magellanic Cloud Supernova. Uh, so this was really, really unprecedented. 
to confirm the finding, it took researchers in 45 countries uh, working in tandem together to go ahead and and really, really say, hey, this is indeed what was going on. It was, again, the collision of two neutron stars. Just you know, They were first locked in this... Um, you know, mutual gravitational embrace, and then just crash together. And that crash basically resulted in the creation of a lot of heavy elements and, and uh, one of, you know, like gold and, and, uh, and platinum and things like that, and things that make up, uh, you know, you and I, Sawyer. So um, Carl Sagan always liked to say that we are, we are made of star stuff, and uh, this, this really, really proved it. But it also proved, too, that something that we've long thought, that the collisions of these bodies um, resulted in the creation of some of our, uh, our, our heavier uh, elements. And uh, lo and behold, that also was, uh, was proven, too. Um, and again, it, it just solidified what was going on from a gravitational wave standpoint. It uh, uh, continued to prove... Um, Einstein was absolutely correct in a, in a lot of um, what he wrote in his special theory of relativity. It was just completely another another moment. In fact, it was kind of funny when 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 the Nobel Prize was announced. Uh, some of the Lego scientists were were elated, but they were also saying that uh, we've got something else up our sleeve, but we don't want to go ahead and reveal it just yet. So everybody was just trying to say, hmm, I wonder what's going on. And then lo and behold, a few, uh, uh, I believe it was just, uh, just a few days later, uh, the, this announcement was, uh, was made. Um, I believe the, um, as Sawyer, I think you alluded to it, the, 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 uh, the actual detection occurred uh, um, between, uh, I believe, on August 17. This was both... Um, by the uh, uh, the LIGO team and by a th- by a third detector near uh, Pisa, Italy. Um, this is the uh, the Virgo detector. And then, as you said, the the once the word got out and people's beep people's uh, cell phones started going off, uh, uh, the world kind of woke up a little bit and uh, and said, "Okay, I guess we're gonna have to point everything." in this direction to, to verify stuff and lo and behold this this was the result and one of the things i want to go ahead and bring up and and it's something that um, mark was fond of pointing out i kind of wish he was here because i think one of the things that um and he alluded to was uh, from dr samuel ting um from uh of ams fame and uh, he said, you go out and try to find something, and then you find something entirely different. Um, or you just don't know what, you know, this next puzzle is going to bring. Um, to bring this into a couple perspective, into a, another perspective here too, Sawyer, we just don't know. Like for instance, every time we find a piece of, of the cosmic puzzle, so to speak, like now I'm going to wax poetic a little bit here, but every time... I mean, we find a piece of the uh, the cosmic puzzle. It gives us not only further insight in how the universe came to be and our place in it, which is which is you know important, but it also has the added benefit 
of giving us a benefit back here on Earth. I'm going to go to a, a speech that Wayne Hale had given or a blog post that Wayne Hale had given, I'm sorry, a while back ago. This was a blog post he had written um, trying to demonstrate that fact. In that blog post, he basically said that, all right, for instance, the uh, theory, the theory of, uh, of gravity that uh, Newton came up with, that directly led to the steam engine, to trains, to locomotives. But could trains and locomotives have been envisioned in Newton's time? Probably not. Um, when uh, uh, when James Maxwell, for instance, found you know discovered all of uh, you know uh, new uh, electromagnetic properties, could radio, could television be foreseen back then in in the eighteen hundreds? Probably not. But that was a direct result of Maxwell's findings. Could Things like high-speed computers, cell phones, and things like that been envisioned during Einstein's time when he came up with the general theory of relativity? Probably not. But again, this is what we have as a result of all of that. What's going to come of this? We don't know. But every time we find a, a piece, there's always an, an application that enhances life back here. So this is, again, just one of the reasons why we do this, not just to go ahead and you know, further the scientific endeavor and, and, and learn about the universe around us, which is important, but also to go ahead and further the human endeavor. And I think that that's really, really the takeaway from all of this. And I know to um, the people walking around, this may not seem like a big deal, uh, there, there's a lot more going on in the world than just you know looking at collisions and saying, okay, fine, now we know where gold and platinum are made, so what? But these things have direct implication to the betterment of our life. And we may not see that right now, but our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren may get a direct benefit from the discoveries that were made this week. So I just thought I'd go ahead and 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 put that into some sort of perspective because there there's been a few uh we had a very interesting discussion between a couple of journalists and and a few other folks in response to an article that was printed uh by somebody that just really was not exactly a um a science journalist, although this person gave it a real good try and really, really got excited about what was going on a little bit, um, but really didn't understand why this, this this was important. And I just wanted to go ahead and, and really kind of kind of put that in, in into perspective and hopefully demonstrate to why this is important and why this why this discovery is important. So, again, thanks for. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'm off my soapbox here, Sawyer. You can take it from here. <laughs> I like that, though. It's the science of now shaping the science of tomorrow. And it's a good way to look at it that way. And um, 
The other thing I found interesting is, again, not just the fact that, holy cow, Einstein was right, and holy cow, we're finding our place in the cosmos, and that we really are made of star stuff. When I heard this news, instantly that Carl Sagan quote came to my mind right away. But the other thing I find amazing about this is here's this event that happened 130 million light years away, which means we're seeing something that happened 130 million years ago. Yes. And here we are at this place in time, and we were able to see it. And not just we in America, not just we as a satellite, the entire world, the entire scientific community came together on this one. In space, there was NASA's Fermi. Uh, there was LIGO. Uh, which is in partnership with ESA. There was also the ESA Integral satellite looking at it. The Swift Telescope, Hubble, Chandra, Spitzer uh, were looking up at it. Dozens of ground-based observatories, including NASA PanSTARRS survey, this coming from a NASA press release, and people all around the world pointed their telescopes, pointed their observatories, pointed their instruments up at this one spot. They all got together and said, we have a chance to see something that happened 130 million years ago that we have never seen before. We are in the right place, in the right time. Let's work together to do this and look at what we found. We found out more than we ever known before and confirmed our place in the cosmos and confirmed more about where we came from in a way, knowing that all these elements that are inside our body and that we wear on rings and that we idolize on records, you know, came from these massive space explosions that not only are super cool because they're huge explosions that are shooting gold out into space, but the fact that we're getting those benefits here on Earth. We're seeing the signs from it. We're seeing waves in space, gravitational waves. And like you mentioned, what comes out of this? Who only knows? In the future, they may look back at this and go, hey, what do you know? It turns out gravitational waves can lead to faster space travel or you know, this explosion to something. Who knows? We don't even know. I, I, that just fascinates me, in case you can't tell by my excitement. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be honest with you. My uh, When they said that this was about 130 million light years out, the hair on the back of my neck kind of stood up, and I'm like, wow, that means this event occurred 130 million years ago that we're looking at just now it took that long for this interesting piece of information to to reach our uh, our telescopes i'll also throw in new star um in that fleet of telescopes that was that were used i mean everything that was that was used anything that we had i mean we we threw the we, we threw the kitchen sink at this thing and uh it it will be very very interesting to see once the james webb telescope gets up gets up there and and that'll be a, be a tremendous tool to use uh, in support of uh, uh, continuing uh, this endeavor with gravitational waves and and continuing trying to see what, what goes on. I believe, too, one of the events that uh, they did mention that they wanted to see, and, and we haven't seen that yet, is an actual supernova explosion through the, the use of, of these uh, wave detectors. So that will be, that's another one that we're kind of waiting for in the wings. Hopefully it's not nearby. We don't want want to have that. But again, Sawyer, I'll, I'm going to throw something out here. I'm going to end the conversation, I guess, on this note. In, in that uh, that essay that, that Wayne Hale had written, he began it with the play Hamlet, and the two of the main characters, Hamlet and Horatio, we meet them as students at the University of Wittenberg. 
And at the time, Horatio is studying what is called natural philosophy or science. And like all students of science, he's pretty darn sure that we know everything, that the universe is known, it's a known quantity, we can measure it, and so on and so forth. Nothing's going to change about it. And through uh, the character of Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare kind of counters that kind of thinking. And he says the following, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are known in your philosophy, close quote. And I think that's the point where we're at right now, and I think that's finally hitting home with this particular stu study. There's more, the more we know is the more we don't know. And all it takes is just one person to just ask a question and figure it out, and that sets everything into motion. So... And more importantly than that, we live in a time when that is possible, too. When we have these telescopes, and not only that, but the willpower and the mindset to look up and wonder what's out there and wonder where we came from and to seize an opportunity like this to help answer, even if it's just a tiny smidge of the information to get us there, any little bit, just to, you know, that's part of our fascination as humans is to figure out our place in space and where we came from, and this is a huge step that way, so... Congratulations to everyone involved with this, and <laughs> I can't wait to see what more science comes out of this, and uh, I have a feeling some more Nobel Prizes are going to be handed out. Oh, no doubt, Sawyer, no doubt. Um, again, yay humans, and with, with everything that's going on, this just goes to show that uh, uh, we human beings are, are capable of uh, some really, really interesting things, and... Uh, uh, I couldn't figure out a. I can't think of a better way to, way to close this conversation, sorry, than what you said. I, I can't think of anything better to close than what you said either, so I think that's the perfect way to end this episode. I'd like to thank you for joining me tonight, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and to Kat. Hey, good luck with everything. I know um, that that doctorate is looming in the headlights, and and we're going to go ahead and, and celebrate once you get it. So again, Kat, good luck to you, and Mark, man, we miss you, buddy. kind of wish you were here for this one. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Exactly. And we hope you'll join us for the next episode as well. Everyone out there, also stay healthy and do well in school if you're in school still. Um, but in the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. 